Welcome back to The Death of Meaning. My name is Jonathan Neal. I am joined as ever by my co-host, Camilla Johnston. How are you, Camilla? I'm good. I feel like I've finally just accepted this is life now. I think it is. I think that's, I think that's, <laughs> it's been a while since we did this, since we recorded mm-hmm. the last time, I did maybe almost like a month ago. Um, so we are far from doing the, the almost nearly weekly thing that we were up to. And I think part of that, because there, there was a hint that maybe life would transition to something different. We got a peek. Yep. We got a peek behind the curtain of a world without COVID-19 or with COVID-19 in decline. And sadly, that curtain has come falling back down on our lives for the time being. <laughs> and it seems like, at least I can tell you from the landscape of higher education, that we will be doing what we were doing in the <clears throat> in the spring, uh, remote teaching, remote learning, if we can call it that, remote everything, until the until springtime. So, yeah, a my boss's son is starting law school at GW, and they held out until last week to notify that everything would be remote. I, yeah. Law school seems like a tough one to do remote. Socratic method doesn't really play out well via Zoom. <laughs> it's, it's funny you should bring that up. So two things recently suggested that maybe law school is a different place than it used to be, or maybe will turn into a different place than it used to be. Um, one was an episode of Billions. Do you watch mm-hmm. the show with Paul Giamatti? I do not, but I know it. Yeah, Paul Paul Giamatti and Damian Lewis, um, loosely based on on Steve Cohen, SAC Capital in the Southern District of New York, prosecutors going after the hedge funds, but has since turned into basically just a nice New York soap opera of the wealthy um, and powerful. Uh, Giamatti's character at some point uh, becomes attorney general for the state of New York and is invited to give a law school class or something having to do with uh, civic law or whatever, um, civil procedure back at his alma mater, which is Yale. And he comes into the first class and launches into a kind of diatribe about law school not in any kind of mean-spirited way but much more beginning on the kind of avuncular socratic method way and Mm -hmm. they do this bit where a number of the students then stand up and be like um things are different now you can't just bully us (laughs) (laughs) and you know someone else is like i don't feel like answering that question and you know there was a momentary student revolt and then some colleague and love interest of of Giamatti's is in the background sitting in on the class and uh, she delivers a, a nice rebuke to all the students about leaning into their opportunities here rather than trying to run into the arms of campus safetyism. So you can see where yeah. the, the writers of Billions came down on that one. Um, but, <laughs> it, you know, that, that was funny. But then I'd say more significantly, a colleague of mine who teaches a art law course has discussed changing the 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 manner in which he is taught because he kind of mm-hmm. came up teaching Socratic method 
And given the, given the recent social justice movements and the movement for black lives and the kind of challenges to pedagogy and power, he is, uh, he is taking that to heart and is really rethinking the way that he's conducted his classroom environment. So I don't know if, this, I don't know if, if Socrates is going to survive 2020. Uh, <laughs> I think, I just think that there's a, there's a really important value in that method because it teaches people to think on their feet and at least figure out how to say, I don't know in the most effective manner <laughs> and get as close to the answer as possible. Right. Um, because if I learned anything in philosophy classes, it was how to realize that I don't know an answer and if I get as close to what I can provide as possible. Uh, but if that doesn't exist, then what do we got? The Scantron test? Yeah. Yeah. Well, those are being done away with too, because, uh, you know, most, most of the in itself is, is, uh, is, is a result of inequities of one sort of another. Um, I'm having a hard time telling where most of this discourse really is because we live in in cross in crossover bubbles of of art, culture, and education where this is just very very loud at the moment, and mm -hmm. maybe just isn't quite as loud elsewhere. I think it's percolating, but it probably just isn't part of the daily life and the daily uh, conversation in a lot of sectors in American society. Although it sounds like yeah. it's it sounds like it's increasingly part of one, but I think that we may be on the, on the forefront of it. Um, and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it's not all bad, but it's all moving very quickly. And I, my hope is that we're settling into a, into a period of actual capacity for debate um, as the, the sort of monolithic side of this thing starts to play itself out and you get a lot more voices in the room and you get a lot of different opinions and people all of a sudden uh, become recognized as the individuals and the thinkers that they are and not as the representatives of the groups, which everyone wants to take them to be. But I don't know. It's a, it's a curious moment. Yeah, I think we, there is a distinct luxury in the creative fields to pontificate on, on moments such as this, which uh, sometimes gets lost even by the people doing like the really important work because it is a huge luxury. Yes, everyone's underpaid. Yes, it's uh, you know pretty cutthroat business, which most people outside the industry don't realize. However, there is a, it's it's not as if you can do this if you're a factory worker at Amazon. You right. can't. You can, but you probably won't have a job. Right. <laughs> so, whereas here you're. Uh, elevated for an op-ed calling someone out like an individual person out or the, all the Instagrams calling trying to dock someone uh, that won't be remembered but immediately makes someone feel good yeah yeah it's uh it'll be it'll be interesting to sort of see it, it play out I mean I think there's a lot more that's gonna that's gonna come down but uh um I think the in some ways, I think the economics of the situation might overtake the uh, the, the social discourse um, as we move along, because 
it increasingly seems like there's just this collective denial of the economic picture, both here and in other places. And the levels of unemployment and the the just the sheer the sheer fact that there's just no way that we're going to get continuous bailouts from a administration that has proven itself incapable of doing uh, anything successful or a Congress for that matter that's incapable of really sort of getting out of its own way too. Um, you know, the, the, the rubber is going to hit the road here pretty soon. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and then I, then I think people are, it's going to be a lot less of a, of an argument about um, what groups are getting what, and it's going to be a fact that, that there are just so many people in such dire situations. I am, maybe you have some thoughts on this, confused why there hasn't been a nationwide eviction moratorium because it seems like we're staring down the barrel of a housing crisis and subsequent homelessness crisis that the country cannot handle yeah that's a good question um the little that i know about it is that there was enough um, in the CARES Act and in the PPP funding that provided people with backstops for a lot of their bills that they needed to pay. Mm -hmm. and, they, and they managed a couple months of that. Um, and some cities and some states put moratoriums on evictions and other things. Um, but it sounds like that stuff is now coming to a head because right. the funding is running out. The moratoriums on evictions are understandable, but they are also difficult to, to handle because that just means they're pushing the crisis one level up in the capital pyramid, which means it's not the people in the homes that are facing the crisis. It means it's the landlords. Um, mm -hmm. And in many cases, not just the landlords, but the banks more effectively and whoever holds the notes on those mortgages and whatever else the financing is. And I, I don't know enough about the internal structures of that, but my sense is, is that stuff could ripple through the system really quickly. And there's, you'll see a, the potential banking crisis going forward, even though a lot of the reporting that I see in the Wall Street Journal elsewhere says that the banks are a lot better positioned than they were, obviously, in 2008. There are a lot more capital reserves. It's not this over leverage. It's not mm -hmm. these overextensions. You know, that, that's not an underlying condition. So people think that there's actually a lot more cushion in the, in the system to handle this kind of thing, even if it's got to go for another few months. But I yeah. think there are going to be lots of, I mean, there have been tons of bankruptcies, right? I mean, you're seeing tons mm -hmm. of bankruptcies and it's happening in the, the hotel fields. It's happening in the hospitality industry. I mean, you're, it's going across the board. And I just, you can't have that happen over and over again without it coming down to the people that work in those places losing their jobs, obviously, because that's what happens when a lot of these places go bankrupt. And then you don't have, you know, and those people aren't making their rent payments or they're not consuming. And then it's just, you know, it's just, it's on down the line. Um, and it seems like it's bad for public health and the long term, 
you're going to have more people in smaller spaces as they try to fit yeah. you know, four people in a two bedroom apartment yeah. or they're not able to have yeah. healthcare. And well, welcome to like late 19th century New York city. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was thinking like London at the industrial yeah. revolution because yeah. Hoovervilles the, and the, you know. right. <laughs> that's the part that seems more concerning to me than strangely than the financial crisis is that the financial crisis we can work ourselves out of, but if we're in a constant state of never actually getting out of the first phase of the first wave of the pandemic, and we're just in it perpetually for three yeah. years until people pull their shit together, that's, and I know that's maybe harsh, but that's more concerning to me that there's going to be the financial problems are going to just perpetuate the healthcare problems yeah. in the pandemic rather than accepting the financial problems in order to prevent the healthcare and yeah. the pandemic problems. Yeah. I mean, I, like I just, it seems to me that there's, I think there's very little appetite for um, evictions because, you know, unless, unless it's a situation where you've got people who, you know, you've been trying to get out of a system for a long time anyway, because there isn't demand. This is the other thing, right. right? Like there's nobody on the backside who's going to turn around and say, oh, great. Like now there's, you know, there, there, there's a bunch of empty space and thus the rent prices and the housing prices are going down. Like there's no, there's no appetite in those industries for that to happen, right? So right. what it doesn't do those people any good to begin the eviction proceedings, one which costs money, takes time, in places like New York City, you know, I mean, it could take like two yeah. years to get someone out of a out of a apartment, given the renter <laughs> laws um, and how friendly they are towards renters. So mm -hmm. I think that some of this just comes down to what it actually looks like in practice, right? Like the decision to say you got people who are behind on the rent, they'd be like, "Hey, listen, like I got laid off, or I'm not in a job, and you know, this is just the, the situation." And um, you know, I think some of these some of these places are gonna be like. What are we going to do, right? If we're going to kick these people out, it's not like they've got people ready to move and yeah. and take up take up residence again, or they don't want to do that. Put something on the market and then have to bring the rental price down because then everybody mm -hmm. else who's living in those same apartments or the same houses is looking over there and be like, "Oh, look, this place was just renting for a thousand dollars a month. You know, they can't fill it. So now right. the people who are actually making their rent payments are going back to their landlords and saying." Let's do 700, what right? Gives? Like, let's renegotiate, which gives. So I think they're going to see that downward pressure. Um, mm -hmm. might, I mean, again, dime store econ economics, there must be that kind of downward pressure happening all the time because people are sort of renegotiating this, this stuff on the fly. Um, right. And that must be also one of the things that's otherwise holding down um, the, the threats of inflation. Because mm -hmm. the amount of borrowing normally is the kind of thing that people would look at and be like, oh, you'd have this like massive inflation because you have all this extra money in the system. But it's not going to happen if the cost of goods aren't going up because right. you know, there's not the demand for it, right? So if your housing is becoming less and less expensive, then inflation isn't going to just go up magically because the government's borrowing against you know, historically low interest rates. 
um, just because there's a larger money supply. There's a larger money supply and it's going out there so that people who are not otherwise earning money can still go out and buy groceries and pay 75% of their rent, which means that mm -hmm. those rents are going to go down and you'll still have deflation. That's because the, the economy itself is doing so poorly. And also because things like you know, food and bread and gas and all that stuff is not necessarily in short supply, right? I mean, yeah. gas is cheaper than it ever was, right? And now it's like <laughs> those companies are going to start going out of business because they can't, you know, make their, they can't make their capital costs, right? I mean, it's, it's, kind, of, right. it's kind of insane. In our, because in our neighborhood, I've lived here for five years and I've never seen as many for rent signs as I have at this moment. And I, have to imagine due to the number of UCLA grad students that live in this area, it's just going to get worse as people don't come back to school and choose to opt to live at home with their parents to save money. I mean, maybe, I mean, it might, it might be a good thing for the, you know, coming for the, for the recovery coming out of this. I mean, it might become yeah. very, you know, capable for people to find, you know, inexpensive housing. You may be able to find a, you know, 500, 800 square foot apartment just that two people can share and still, you know, maintain good distance or whatever else you need to, mm -hmm. or you get all everybody's bubbles. But it's like, I mean, you know, the, the rents, the rents in this, you know, otherwise like pretty nice neighborhood close to UCLA, right on the other side of the 405. I can't remember the last time I was looking at it, but it's like, you know, it's like $2,000, $2,500 for like nice two bedrooms, one bedrooms, like it's pretty expensive. <laughs> yeah we pay and I'm, I'm rent controlled and i've yeah. lived here for five years and we pay 2900 for a two bedroom two bath yeah and that's pretty standard yeah for uh, updated yeah but so i mean you can see that dropping 20 percent, right mm -hmm. I mean, you can see that going down, to, going down to, <laughs> i mean but yeah you can see it going down to 2500 you see like once the people turn around and saying listen i want to renegotiate um, mm -hmm. and landlords understanding that, you know, there's probably like, there are a lot of other rentals probably available. And so people are going to start to have their pick, the ones that can make rent. And so they'll go in and they'll start to be a renter's market again, things like that. I think the homeless problem is a different one again. I mean, I think right. part, of, part of that is the, I think, I think that you could, you could even, you could see rents going down, you could see prices going down and you could still see homelessness going up just because of the precarity of, right. And the availability of genuine low cost housing. Um, and just the, and just the pure lack of it. But, mm -hmm. um, but interestingly enough, driving around, it hasn't, it hasn't seemed like you've had this massive expansion from what we're used to in our neighborhoods. Not in our neighborhood. I've noticed it in downtown, but I mean, it grows every week in downtown with or without a pandemic. Um, it I, also I, might I, be summer in LA. Yeah, I mean, I was also wondering about the, the, that phenomenon too. I was downtown a couple times. More just because there's so much less going on in downtown that some of mm -hmm. the natural, let's not call it natural, but let's call it some of the some of the uh, regular sort of commuter and tourist and business traffic patterns, both people and cars and everything else have become so diminished that it's created right. a larger capacity for the, the homeless to kind of expand their environment. Mm -hmm. And 
there's less of whatever those kind, you know, whatever kind of social dynamics happen where it's like there are places where people feel comfortable parking a tent and people where they don't. And now it may be just a lot more comfortable to park a tent in areas of downtown where they haven't felt comfortable before because there's just not as much foot traffic and not as many people around. Right. Right. Um, and that just might have to do with the lack of density that's happening, the lack of circulation that's happening. But that would be really interesting. I don't know who's doing that kind of look or that understands the dynamics of that ebb and flow of, of how these, of how these um, sort of, I don't know, the, 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 the domestic, you know, occupations of the street happen with regard to businesses and other things. Um, mm -hmm. But it would be interesting to, to know how that's, how that's playing out. There was an interesting piece on NPR maybe a month ago where they were discussing the fact that the heroin usage in more dense areas of New York City or what were once the more densely traversed areas of New York City as well as the nicer areas, uh, the higher rent price areas of New York City has gone up. But then when they went out and interviewed the actual homeless heroin users, they realized it was half that they'd always been there, but people did never stop to look because there were so many people just walking the walking area. By, and they just right. Yeah, and they didn't want to look at the homeless person on the bench, but now since there's no one else walking by, they can see them shooting up. <laughs> and then at the other side, it was just people who were previously so far uptown that like way, way, way past the, like where you were and Columbia, but getting to the point where they were like, well, we can go anywhere now. <laughs> like, yeah. No one's in town. Yeah. All the rich people are upstate. We can come down that's sort of, and that's like, sort of shoot up and... Yeah, that's sort I'm of what sure. I, that, exactly. That's sort of what I, that's the dynamic that I sort of think yeah. might, might be at work. It's just, it's like the space is so much more open and occupiable that there's a sense of, there's a little bit more sense of entitlement to the city on the part of these folks who have been, been otherwise down and out and they feel like, okay, I don't, I, why do I need to stick it out up here in this corner? Whereas now there's no one out here. And so mm -hmm. they, they've got a little bit more, um, you know, a little bit more liberty to roam, which is which is kind of interesting, right? When the rest when the rest of the city is kind of ditched out for the suburbs, um, and I'm just curious to know if that's sort of what's happening in downtown LA too, where the people are like mm -hmm. going going for walks and realizing that they've got streets and alleys and things that are basically just like uninhabited because of the of the pandemic, and not just because it's after 6 p.m. or something like that. Most of the city has gone to sleep, but everyone's going to be back in the morning. Um, you know, you, you fall asleep on one street and you wake up the next morning and no one's still there. You're like, all right, this seems like a, no one's going to bother me over here. I'm going to hang out. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I'd imagine that a lot of those folks just want a place where they aren't going to be pestered or looked at or um, be visible mm -hmm. or surveilled or bothered and uh, and who can blame them. But, you yeah. know, if you, if you can do that now on like South Flower and... <laughs> <laughs> and six <Exactly. laughs> right like outside of the jonathan club then uh why not it's a nice corner <laughs> yeah exactly no that i think that must be it now that i think about it for parts of downtown because since i've i've lived in la what six years now i've volunteered in downtown since i've moved here and Skid Row has moved progressively west every yeah. year, just a little bit at a time. And, uh, but there's always, 
there's fewer social services available now during the pandemic, which is counterintuitive, um, just because they want to avoid people gathering in large spaces, which I do understand that part. Uh, but that also means that there's less people and there's less people out looking for odd job work. Yeah. So it's just this odd, I'm sure it, it, they probably were just as many people there to a certain extent and they're just closer and compact and less people moving around during the day. Yeah, it's, uh, it'll be an interesting, I mean, it, there's a lot of material to unpack there's a lot of stuff to look at in the, in the aftermath of this. Right. I mean, and, and again, that's right. like, I, I think there, this, there'll be, t I mean, I frankly, I've been, I've been just ridiculously impressed with the speed of some of my colleagues and, and, and people within particularly the sciences and biomedical sciences and other things like that, just like, you know, researchers and doctors and others that have just like, all right, this is what we're doing now. Same thing happened in kind of in, in, in business and other things when people really like shifted and retooled to be able to build uh, PPE and mm -hmm. to try and create, um, uh, uh, you know, other, other kind of like essential stuff for um, to serve both, both the public as well as the hospitals and the, and the healthcare workers during, during the sort of first wave of the pandemic and now into the second wave. But so there's like, there's two pieces of that. There's one that's the sort of dynamism of enterprise, which is, you hear all these stories, at least the ones that I've been paying attention to about the fact that, you know, the, the stuff that's been getting in the way has been, been a lot of it. And this is like, I feel like I'm becoming this kind of like weird, like my, my, my one time like Marxist communist strain of thinking <laughs> is like now rather than just like being moderated has like jumped the, the dialectical gap to like pure libertarianism. Um, but there's like this now it like thinking about, you know, these, the, the, these, these people in these businesses that, that really have been able to like keep their workers employed and switch to like building stuff that people need, right. Ventilators, right. masks, whatever it is. But regulations are getting in the way, right? Like the fact that stuff has to be like approved by six different government agencies and states and, and other places, you're like, oh, like that is just like, I can see why mm -hmm. if you were involved in that, in that activity, you would just want to, you know, you would want to go see studying with a libertarian crowd so that you didn't have to deal with like the regulatory regimes that make it impossible right. for people to do this kind of stuff. Like if someone wants to like make masks that work, let them make masks that work and let the like consumer figure out whether it's a good or bad. And we, we deal with this all the time, but particularly for medical devices, which masks and, you know, face, face plates and all these other kinds of things are qualified as they're just like endless hoops that people have to jump through both at the state mm -hmm. and, and at the federal level. And so it's always like this great story when these people really do do a good job and figure out how to, how to navigate those waters and then they're successful for it. And so I, I applaud that. But then the fucking researchers in the universities are doing amazing stuff. Yeah. Right? I mean, they just like retool their labs that like, you know, two, two months ago we were doing, you know, genetics on some sea slug. And now <laughs> like we've, you know, we've got X amount of computing power in this grant. Everybody's like shifted over to doing, uh, you know, genetics on coronaviruses and whatever else it is. And 
I mean, it's kind of extraordinary. And I, and I, and I feel like mm-hmm. it's a story that doesn't get told enough because a lot of it is sort of, you know, and this is, this is where I would say that there's a, there's a, a distraction. The, the movement for black lives and the new social justice movements as, as important as they may be, they are a distraction from all of this like incredible work that these researchers are doing, regardless of what color, what gender, what disposition, what political or ideological outlook they may have. Like these are people who are in these laboratories with principal investigators who have been able to retool what they're doing to try and help in some sort of way. And not for any kind of like massive remuneration. They're not getting any benefits yeah. really out of it. It's like, they're just like, this is, this is what we're, this is what we do, right? Like we're researchers yeah. and we have the capacity to help. And so we're going to figure out like what little piece of the puzzle we can help to do. And I, my sense is that there are probably, you know, for every one story that makes it into mainstream press, there are probably like 20 others that deserve to at least get like, you know, 300 words mentioned somewhere and mm-hmm. show what's going on because as much as universities really are these, you know, sclerotic places, the research missions of these laboratories and these research, they are they like, they are these like little like skunk work startup places that are um, yeah. able to do a lot of really interesting stuff. You know this, I mean, you like, you grew up in a household of people who do this kind of stuff. And that I think is, it's a lot closer in some ways to the kind of, you know, almost like libertarian enterprise model, because it's like, I've got my, you know, like, I've got my lab, I've got my funding, I've got my postdocs and my people. Yeah, I've got to teach my classes or whatever else and I'm taking my salary. Mm-hmm. But it's like, this sandbox is my sandbox. And we can kind yeah. of, you know, we can do what we want to do inside of the sandbox. And then we like link our sandbox to like the sandbox at that school and at that school and at that research group and at that university and in that country. Mm-hmm. And like, and all those sandboxes are talking to one another and sharing information and they're all annoyed with their own administrations and it's all too much regulation and they all have to do too much committee work and whatever else. But at the end of the day, what happens inside of their sandbox is kind of like their thing. Right. And it's, right. and it's super interesting. And I, I'm always fascinated by the fact that like that kind of work, it really is, is, is bringing out, I think some of the best of what, um, uh, education, higher education and, the kind of enterprise mentality is able to is able to do. Yeah, I think, and it's we're in a particularly difficult time <laughs> of all times for a pandemic to hit that has a vaccine possibility because there is such a such a distrust in science in a variety of communities right now that's been like those folks aren't even going to take the vaccine. They're not even going to take the vaccine. <laughs> I mean, one of my my best friend, her fiance, is like very anti-vaccine. Oh um, yes, I've been hearing yeah, about I mentioned, this. Yeah, and and part of me is like can't get wrap my head around it because it's beyond comprehension that if there's a possibility to be avoid this pandemic why not take it and what is that like okay yes what is what does that remind me so give us a little more background give give our give our audience of like six people a little more background Uh, like what does this person do no like like how does how does how does someone who holds these positions operate in society i think that's the that's more my coach oh okay so independent operator Mm -hmm. independent operator um 
he is from Africa, he's from Ghana, and uh, I think he has a very particular view on how, on the idea of in, of malice intent versus yeah. people who have, like for example, Henrietta Lacks, did you read that book? No. When it came out? So this woman had this African-American woman has DNA that is basically used in labs everywhere. Um, she is like the sourdough starter for vaccines. Because right. I, I, I think I read, a, yeah, yeah. I read the Atlantic article or whatever it was. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so the woman who wrote the book was very intent on writing it in the sense that these, these scientists were taking advantage of her because they thought she was dumb and like, didn't think she deserved anything because of her station in life and because she just they they didn't think that she deserved anything but if that woman clearly hasn't spent time with scientists because they don't give a shit about anything other than the fact that what's really cool in front of them in a petri dish it right. has very little and i understand that's not always the case but as far as geneticists go that's what they're looking at is how interesting right. and uh, right. like right. how much they could do. They and do so not it's see, a lot every, of, there are no people. They're just objects. <laughs> right. And so I think that's sometimes getting lost with some things or like the Margaret Sanger Planned Parenthood situation. If you have the option of <laughs> spreading birth control, you're going to, and you're going to try and get everyone on board again, I have a particular view on eugenics has nothing to do with race as everything to do with people who are qualified to do, be parents. Um, I think should, birth control should be in the water and you should have to apply to get off of it. But <laughs> <laughs> I really do. I know t I grew up with around rich people who should not have had kids. Like they're financially capable of taking care of them and they're just an accessory. And then I'm related to trailer park trash who can't stop it's like don't know where babies come from so and both <laughs> are not great and it's it's bad so yes i believe in a form of yeah, exactly. population control yeah yeah this has um, nothing to do with group dynamics <laughs> no it's a hundred percent that there are people who who if you're not qualified to yeah, take care yeah. of a child don't have a child and it's just bizarre to me anyway so long story how do, you, way, how do you establish that, those qualifications in advance? <laughs> I wish people, I knew. Because people game the I, system, right? I mean, think about like, I mean, you would have the, the people who are, I don't want to interrupt this, this, keep going, then we'll get to this one. My, my anger of one. like yeah, how yeah. people choose and don't choose to have children. Because I mean, like, I adore my parents. I do not think they probably should have had me. I, <laughs> like, I'm grateful they did. I'm here. I'm talking to you. Yeah, but, if, However, they had, but if they hadn't had you, you wouldn't be around to be ungrateful for it. So it's like, no, a, I am grateful. I am grateful for it. But there's moments where I look at them and I'm like, you know, you. It's it's a double-edged sword because I'm grateful that they raised me like an adult. I was never a child in the house, other than the fact that I had to do like chores. But so did yeah. they. I just, okay, whatever. Benjamin Button. <laughs> but I was never treated. I had an earlier bedtime, but they were like, that's because you are this many years old and you need this much sleep. Right, and, you need more sleep. Right. Um, but it was not, it wasn't because, there was no baby talk, it wasn't any of that shit. Um, but 
there's also times where I'm like, it probably wasn't smart for you to raise me and do certain things, allow certain things and speak to about me or to me about certain things. Anyway, um, <laughs> like that's a perfect example. I'm grateful they did, but like maybe they should have had to take a class. Maybe there should have been a class for them before they raised a child. Oh my God. Really? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, because who knows I could have also turned out like some humanist annoying person if that had happened but (laughs) it's true okay long roundabout way is that this fiance my best friend's fiance has a very niche perspective on intent versus outcome it's all and it's all malign it's all people are, are all like it's the the opposite. It's read, it's it's, all, it, yeah, it's the opposite yeah. of like why chalk up to malice, which you can basically chalk up to incompetence, those kinds of things. And not even incompetent. Not. It's just I think they're like someone who hasn't had to deal with people like on the spectrum. That's what I mean. <laughs> like, yeah, no, no. It's like you, you, you take know? it. You take everything as if it's like an actual potential affront and and mm-hmm. purposeful, rather than just like people not being good at working with other people or just right. fucking up a communication or being involved in their own, their own stuff. Right. It's like the, yeah. like the, the least generous interpretation of other people's intentions at all times. Right. Like he, so he grew up in a community that had a lot of issues like three generations back of being one of the areas that was used for testing vaccines. Mm-hmm. So a lot of paralyzed people due to a polio vaccine. A lot of the early, the first one before Salk came out with the actual one that worked, but the first rendition of the polio vaccine left a lot of people paralyzed. And so when he sees that or knows about that, and that's in his cultural and genetic memory, and then sees Bill and Melinda Gates saying the first people who should get the vaccine are African-American and Latino-Americans. His initial thought is they're trying to ruin us. Sure. And I agree. I, I agree with him. <laughs> I think he's right. <laughs> I, I get it in some regards, but I'm also like, maybe it's... He's got to come on it, the podcast next time around and we're going to have this conversation. <laughs> it's tough. It's really tough. And uh, we've had a two-hour conversation the other day where I was like, maybe is there any chance you think that you might just be misinterpreting them? I'm not saying Bill and Melinda Gates are great. I find them very annoying. I think she's impossible. But if that's actually their true intention, that they think they're doing the right thing, then (laughs) it's just like, then you're at an impasse and calling them evil doesn't really do anything because they, they think they might think they're doing the Lord's work. It's super interesting so. because it's it's a it's an interesting obverse to some of the the conversations that are happening around the 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 discourse of racism and anti-racism right now. Whereas your friend's fiance has has taken almost like the extreme opposite position that in fact intention is the most important thing, right? And that. And that the assumption is that it is all malice intent. It is all it is all malintent on the right. part of the of these folks. And so it's not that 
it's not that these activities on the part of the Gates Foundation or anybody else in the science world are, are because there's like a systemic racism problem. It's because they are in fact individually themselves evil, bigoted, racist right. human beings, and as much and they are pulling the wool over everybody's eyes, which is which is is in many ways. I have to, I'd like almost respect that as a position <laughs> because, because the other one, the, the opposite one, which is to say that the, that intention doesn't matter and not an extreme, but to say that like, it's all about the reception and the observer's sense of what this thing yeah, is about um, is, you know, basically removes the possibility of disagreement, removes the possibility of mm -hmm. argument, makes it only about respecting difference, makes it only about how valid my uh, understanding of the world is versus what somebody right. else's would be. Um, and I think, listen, I think a lot of that's been caricatured as well, but I, at, the, at the extreme, your fiance, your, your husband's, sorry, your friend's fiance, has like a great a great way of looking at the world right he's like he's he's discarded all of this other nonsense and it's like no like if we're going to talk Everyone's about <laughs> we're gonna talk about racists and we're going to talk about this evil world that we live in it's because these people believe it and the rest of you just aren't willing to admit it <laughs> and, right. every, and, and the rest of you are the ones that are i don't know just putting your head in the sand, ignoring it. And it is a Holocaust every day. <laughs> and it's not because it's some yeah. systemic problem. It's because there are, it's because each and every one of you are some evil individual bigoted people. And if it were to be that, that structure and it didn't, it didn't go outwards, I could, I could get behind it maybe. However, when he does things like post Dr. Stella Emanuel, you know, that woman who Trump retweeted, who was like um, an African doctor who went to the steps of Congress and at a press conference paid for by the Tea Party. Right. Let's all remember that, you know, like she is a, she, they clearly picked her for a reason. And she gets up there and is talking about hydroxychloroquine works and not, or zinc works and all these things. And then we find out this woman's also a preacher in a strip mall and she believes that there's demon sperm. And, and I mean, it's just like, you know, I've slept yeah. with some weird people, but I've never, that's never come up. <laughs> but <laughs> um, so I just, those are the that, conversations I'm having at these weird, you know, eyes wide shut parties in the Hills. It's cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I just, that's where it gets a little, scary to me as his fiance's best friend because I'm like okay so if she gets in a car accident and she needs surgery Is do you distrust right yeah yeah that's where I get like because both her parents are high-powered attorneys so part of me is like okay well we can sue him for medical power of attorney if necessary but <laughs> that's where my brain goes it's like you can't put ginger on this like you where? can't put turmeric on it and call it like yeah I'm curious about where, like, where does that relationship break down along these conversations? Are these just conversations they don't have, or are they? Are these? We've tried to. It's tough. She's. She is 
thinks he's going through a phase. Ah. And so I'm hopeful. Yes, I'm very hopeful it's a phase, a phase because I don't want, like, my plan phase, in my whole life. Phase as in, like, he's adjusting to new medication or phase as in, like, he's a man and I can fix him? A phase as in he is uh, disgruntled by the state of the world and is questioning everything. Who's and not? Dude, get in line. <laughs> yeah, and my point is like with in the same regard as I believe in questioning everything, but I also think at some point expert opinion matters. And you have, particularly with things like medicine, there's you can find or science, you can find flat earth science. You can find that's not science, science that says but you, but that's what I <laughs> that's what my point. Flat earth stuff yeah stuff you can find stuff this right. is we didn't go to the moon you and you can, can find file stuff. and you can find evil doctors and you can find bad doctors and you can find right. stupid doctors just like you know yeah dr stella emmanuel so <laughs> it, that's where i mean i i'm obsessed with her because her she puts her um her sermons on youtube highly recommend them as someone who grew up spending a lot of a lot of time with jesus big fan because <laughs> she has this one bit where so facebook and twitter started taking down her post where she was saying like hydroxychloroquine it's real fauci's silencing me and so then she posted on facebook that jesus would come down and destroy the facebook servers if they didn't reinstate her posts about hydroxychloroquine and i was like what an amazing jesus that he wouldn't stop a pandemic but would destroy Facebook servers. Yeah. That yeah. is like such a, a niche Jesus for someone to have. But you realize these, oh, I mean, th oh, those are, this is like, these are the, 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 the great kind of gambling odds that those folks can always rely on because no one's going back and no one who believes is going back to double check on those bets. I know. They're never, like, no one ever remembers when they're wrong. They only, they only promote it when they're right. Like, so if there was, you know, if, if the Facebook servers happened to have been like somewhere on the East coast in like North Carolina and got taken down by a tropical storm, you know, in Easter or whatever it was, and they'd yeah. be like, there you go. Right. Like, it was right. boom. Or like, yeah. whatever, you know, the stagecoach fire and, in, in, uh, in the central Valley, it took down like a server farm that happened to be like up there in the mountains in the Sierras or something. Right. Then, uh, then they, then that would have been just like, you know, 10,000 more followers and some more part, a bigger part of the grift. <laughs> yeah. So their wedding got delayed because of COVID. So every year for this to sort itself out. <laughs> Well, we'll see. All right. It's going to be interesting. Well, we'll take a, we'll take a, I always forget to do this. We'll take a commercial break for two okay. seconds and then uh, we'll come back and talk about some art. Perfect. And we're back. <laughs> what, uh, what has been happening over at, uh, at the Lapis Press? I've seen the Analia Saban uh, uh, print go yeah. out and, uh, You've been paying a lot closer attention to the art world than I have been, although I'm trying to get back into it these days as the slide from August to September always makes me think about trying to uh, trying to get out and see things, although now it's going to be purely digital. 
or on the, it, on the place of a book jacket? It's a strange um, leveler in some for the for-profit side of the industry because it's really forcing the hand and it's uh, a, it, it's reduced people's bravado and it's reduced people's ability to bullshit strangely i i was thinking it would be the other ways because since everything's online you're talking about you're you talking about just like the general market sensibility right just now. the general just market like, sensibility there, there is no everyone all, has to show their cards all and all of the and all of the like all of the social environments and all of the status mm -hmm. consciousness all this stuff is just like not available so now it's just like you either like it or you don't you're you want it or you don't yeah. you either got the money or you don't and that's just like that's it or you want to talk about yeah. it, you don't. You've got, you're curious, yeah. And it's, so that part I actually really enjoy because people are being a bit more forthright. People are, there's less pussyfooting and there's less humming and hawing than yeah. there was. Even when the, when everyone was super flush and we had a bull market like like a year ago, I guess yeah. it would have been. Yeah. It's, it's far more uh, forthright than I think it's ever been it's been in a long time, maybe since 08. Are you, seeing, are you seeing any extra activity because the, the, the stock market's still going kind of bananas and are people, yeah, so there must be some people that are taking advantage of that and moving, moving money out of stock market casually on like a small basis mm -hmm. and moving it into other sort of hard assets. I've got to see them. There must be some benefits going on. Yeah, the, I think the industry overall is looking at like a 30% reduction in from last year to this year. However, it's not, I, I'd be curious to know if that's due to the auction. Like right now everyone's saying 30%, but the galleries aren't releasing that they're not sending things to auction, whereas they were before. And auctions are gonna be down because they're doing them all online even the auctions are doing well frankenfeller has a new world record by two million dollars yeah. yeah um so i i'm well, also thinking about how much money the auction houses are saving to a certain extent yeah. they furloughed a ton of people and they don't have to do the same roadshow marketing production everything's online so like you yeah. know e even if even if the overall you know the overall revenue or the sale prices are down that's just got to meet whatever is happening in the background of the cost. And I'm sure they've sort of like completely reduced a lot of what it is that they were normally doing in terms of all of the glad handing, yeah, you know, flying people all around the world with the various different objects, you know, now it's, but there is a, there is a sense that like, this is a, this is a snapshot photograph of the market because nothing new is being introduced. No one's going in there and being like, now's the time to like take some artist who has been kind of in the small time and try and bring them up into the big time with one of the big right. contemporary art sales. Like everything that's being sold right now is market proven. Tested. Has, right. a, has a secondary audience already uh, and um, is just basically like, you know, d doing the liquidity work that the auction houses were already doing, right? It's like, yeah. The rest of the stuff is happening. Old folks are dying. 
because of COVID. That means the states are coming <laughs> on. I hate yeah. to say it, the states are coming on. Yeah. Uh, tax bills have to be paid. And, uh, and people uh, are getting divorced. And people are still getting divorced because they've been spending spouse. more time. And <laughs> elections are being separated. So it's like, yeah. so the auction houses, this is the business they were in. It's basically the the mortuary service of the of the of the culture industry and that's what auction houses are yeah and i think frankly i think the the uh the woe is me numbers about the decrease from last year are solely to rationalize laying off 20 to 30 percent of their employees that they sure. do not need because there's no more no more fares. Events. There, yeah no people fares, aren't no coming events. into this you don't really need four front desk people you need no. maybe one and no. like your assistant can work at the front desk right so i think that's much more what's occurring is just people trying to find like zwerner and pace and even house i mean hauser has let, let off like only like eight percent they've done a really good job of keeping everyone yeah you know that nazi sensibility does somebody well but um i mean i love that place but i also hate it uh they <laughs> i i'm just so annoyed every time i get an email that says they represent another another estate new yeah yeah i know like shut up it's just means, consolidation it's just total consolidation ugh. yeah i mean look at gavin brown and uh and tiger lady joining us yeah so. i mean that was i mean look i mean there was i can't remember it was it the jerry sarts article or somebody that was his first show in new york at the chelsea hotel was um oh now her name is blanking uh what's her face i don't know Uh, um oh she did the like like a very kind of light portrait work of like Kurt Cobain and these other kind of like figures. Elizabeth Payton? Yes. So, yeah. you know, that was his first show in New York in the, in the, in the Chelsea hotel in like the early nineties. That was his first show? That was, that was, that was like the first thing it did in like in the hotel room. That was just like the, according to the Salts article. Right. And then you only needed to read like a little bit while longer to be like, you know, Payton eventually left to go to Gladstone. Yeah. Okay, and then Gavin's doing the rest of the thing. So, like, you know, you there are always these relationships between the various different, yeah, you know, one party systems of of the of the gallery world, and so Brown becomes the partner. He's fifty eight. Gladstone's early eighties now. I didn't yeah. realize, right? I mean, it's like she's been dying oh, yeah. for so long. It was hard to understand, but like she's. Like, okay, so, like, who's going to take over the business? Yeah, she's had these directors and other people, but, like, she's never going to entrust the business to somebody who's not been an owner and has a relationship to the artist and who's, like, represents the same kind of ethos of hierarchy, which is one dealer, 20 artists, that's the relationship, and then the various different collectors that can... and, and, And Gladstone was the... was the... The I don't want to say that she was the inventor of or the perfecter of, but she was certainly a devotee of the sales tactic, which was like try not to sell work, right? Yeah. Like collectors showing up at the booth 
and her basically being like, oh, it's so good to see you. And then like walking away, right? As if you were like the right. least important person. You know, the equivalent of the high abuse that patrons would get at fancy New York restaurants, right? right. Like that whole, that whole shtick of like being, being part of the status crew in New York City high cuisine where you paid an arm and a leg to be abused by the maitre d' and everybody else at the restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> and there was like one, you know, and there was always like one small coterie of like six people who always looked like they were being treated super well. And I'm sure there were. I'm sure the Gladstone had like <laughs> eight collectors who she treated super well. And everybody else that brought the money was just the money. And those eight collectors were the people who got to go to the dinners. And those artists were the ones who got to mm-hmm. hang out. And Gavin Brown was this cut from the same cloth. So that yeah. doesn't that doesn't feel like consolidation to me. Like Pace, Hauser, Zwerner, like just the like the hoovering up of estates <laughs> right. and every, and everybody else. Like anybody who's got even like and it's and it's less consolidation than it is just like it's it's economies of scale, right? It's like it's like right. these other galleries, and it's like okay. You've got, a, you've got a director there who's got a relationship with six artists. That equals X amount of income. And, and you know, one director, six artists, 20 collectors, right? Mm-hmm. You can bring that in-house. The director gets, doesn't even need an office, right? Gets like a, yeah. like a desk. The artists are still, you know, like it doesn't cost anything. But then go on, you come onto the roster. You've got all the spaces you need all around so you can show that stuff in Hong Kong you can show it in Torino <laughs> yeah you know, you know what i mean it's like it's like it it makes perfect sense for those places because they've already done all the infrastructural work and now they've just got to fill it out to capacity so again it it does yeah. it feels less like quote unquote consolidation like consolidation to me will sound a lot more like if you know it w- was a little bit more when it was like Zwerner and Worth Right. Like it was when, when yeah. you see these partnerships come in where if all of a sudden, uh, um, you know, it becomes like if like Matthew Marks and Gladstone decide that they need to like pair up in order to yeah. create some sort of economy of scale. But they won't because there's no economy of scale there. Right. Like it's not like they're going to find mutual use of each other's spaces and directors and marketing operations and whatever else. Like, it's not the way it works. So consolidation yeah. is not the term that I would that I would throw at this. It's more just like I don't know. It's it's like it's like it's kind of like the big tech companies just buying up the smaller competitors. Yeah. And I mean he's taking absorbing the big boy with him. He's taking cats, so and Avery Singer and a couple of the other boys. He's so taking, he's t- taking, I mean he's paying for himself with cats. cats. Come on, yeah. Which is also the most ridiculous idiotic overblown market for an yeah, artist ever. He's, he's on his way to dying. He's like painting his own funeral at this point. So it's him. It's going to be her, I guess, and him. And then but Tim does, Taylor. But, but, but Katz's market stays. Like, I mean, it's like, that's like Tim Wesley's market. Like, how does Katz's market stay afloat? Like, Katz's work is not good. It's desirable. Not, he it's, paints like five things. Not good. <laughs> and it's not good think, because it's like not it's it's just like it's not good 
Um, I think it's the same as Hockney, I think, where it's, it's a name and like I, yeah, I mean, I'll get a shot probably somewhere, but Hockney is not my guy. No, Hockney for, a long t- Hockney for a long time wasn't my guy either. Right. I mean, I'm now fully on record in the Brooklyn rail with a headline that says, I fucking hate David. Hockney. Oh yeah. I forgot about that. Piece. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, and I, and I've come around, I still, you know, Hockney's not my all now my favorite artist. And I, but I do give Hockney a lot more credit for the versatility and the facility yes. that he has both with technology and sort of interest in a, in a in a full scope of artistic production and different activities, and you know I, I I can see now where where Hockney's value comes in. I don't have to like every single thing that he did, and I can and I can find him pompous still, but I can I can now also recognize that there there is a. I mean, I don't know if it's got a. I don't know if Hockney's swimming pools from the nineteen seventies need to be eighty million dollar paintings, but but still, like, there's a there's right. a ton of stuff there. Like, as an artist, I think that he is like a the genuine article. Cats, like, sure, artist, interesting, but like, I don't know. It's just so <laughs> boring and uninteresting, but and it feels so feel like very that? provincial and New Yorkish, and like unadventuresome, yeah. and like you know the lesser equivalent of 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 what the kind of literary world of, of, of like New York Jewish uh, uh, creatives were in like the sixties and seventies and the eighties. I don't know. It's just like, I, that's just a, I, I look at, I look at cats as just like a, as like a, having ridden the wave and caught a good one. And then, you know, yeah. I mean, too, too many, just- too many people with money already invested to like let yeah. it go to shit. But trust me, those people are all looking at their walls and yes, it's, it's like, Oh look, it's cats. But then like, I don't know, like someone's going to walk in and be like, Oh look, you've got like this creepy picture of this woman <laughs> who's topless with a tan line. And you know, I thought we got over that in, you know, in the, from 2015 to 2020 guys like that's not cool anymore <laughs> um and but don't you I mean, feel that way about like all of them wesselman him i mean well, everyone at least wesselman's a- like a little bit more like gratuitously pop and abstract right like and repetitious and kind of hilarious with like the rotund nipples and everything that are just like yeah it's like wesselman's wesselman is like donald judd plus uh pop art right like you know one nipple after another <laughs> true <laughs> um yeah and yeah and there is a lot of that in there for sure i mean this it was a different age so i don't want to i don't want to judge the standard but i think that there's a ton you know just like the pre-raphaelites don't have some like great market or you know i mean it's still worthwhile because enough people were invested in it but like come on cats is just like an uninteresting painting that deserves to be kind of consigned to a secondary world of like maybe it can still run for like 50 to 100k but it shouldn't be out there at like the 10 million dollar level Bazillions, yeah. yeah no way no way doesn't 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 warrant trading at that at that piece and at some point it's going to go down because like the next generation here's the thing like no one in your generation is gonna be like oh i'm dying for a fucking alex Katz. no one in my no. generation is going to be out there looking like i'm dying for a fucking alex Katz. 
because no one's going to make the argument for it. They're going to look at it and be like, like, okay, that's not my, it's not my thing. So right, right now that market is being sustained by a generation that bought that stuff when it was fresh and then they mm-hmm. were all, and then, you know, and then there might be one generation behind them and then a bunch of international buyers who are looking to sort of maintain this stuff because it's an international brand. But those people are going to be gone because no one's writing about outscats in any kind of positive terms. No <laughs> one is. No one is. No, he's an asshole. And yeah, his work is, it's just like the Toni Morrison of white man painting. It's like the same thing over and over again. Yeah, and, and it's, it's not, not, and he's not Leon Golub, right? Like, I mean, I think, no, like, yeah. like, I think, like Leon Golub's work should be like ten million dollars. Like, like, like the market the cats have should should be the market that Leon Golub has. Like, Golub's work is like gritty, in your face, equally representational, equally flat, equally, you know what I mean? But but actually right. has some formal qualities, the whole scraping of paint off the surfaces of those canvases and those like crazy scenes of like torture and whatever else. Like that's not everybody's deal, but there's a lot of this stuff that he did, which is a lot less, you know, in your face. Golub is like, I don't know, you know, pretty much the same generation as cats, maybe a little bit older. Yeah. Golub's work should be top of the top of the heap at this point. And the fact that cats is the one that people are talking about is really a disappointment. <laughs> you got to write an article on him. That's not a, not David Hockney. Yeah. I don't know. Like, it's just like, that'll be the, that'll be the, I don't like the inveterate takedowns. Maybe I'll do the, maybe I'll have to do the, the equivalent of the, of the cats Golub comparison. And you know, from the, from the market standpoint. And cause, cause I do think that Leon Golub, deserves more attention than cats so i'll have to do like a okay. theodora adorno philosophy of modern music stravinsky uh schoenberg thing <laughs> oh god that <laughs> takes make, yeah that's like that'll make some, it super readable yeah that's some what 12 was that 12 tone music that oh, was yeah. all of that right so uh yeah i went through a big phase of that because it's it was super interesting um, but you know, yeah. Schoenberg and Kandinsky were good, good friends and Schoenberg lived here in California right. as an, and as a matter of fact, just by sheer dumb chance, the first birthday party that my wife went to with our daughter, when we moved to California, when she was four, uh, was in the morning at somebody's house and it's a bunch of preschool kids and, she looks across the room and it's a bunch of LA wives all dressed up in high heels. And she looks oh, around God. and she finds like the one person who's also in a pair of sweatpants and like, you know, sneakers. Cause you know, it's like a Sunday morning kids birthday yeah. party and they strike up a great friendship and, and now our families are good friends. Um, but this is uh, Arnold Schoenberg's granddaughter who is a, Ooh public defender here in Los Angeles and whose, uh, whose family uh, is, you know, has been in LA ever since. And as you also know, because you're a graduate of our program and uh, know something about art law and restitution, Randy Schoenberg is, uh, is Arnold Schoenberg's uh, uh, grandson and, uh, and, and uh, another member of this clan. So um, the lady in the lady in gold or whatever it was, yeah. the, the Adele Block Bauer painting. 
Um, and uh, yeah, so these these folks are now part of our part of our circle. Super fun to be around. That's interesting. Good to know. Yeah, I'm always so, trying to find interesting California people to and, prove to my New York friends. To stay and here. interestingly enough, so you know, because it, it, it was funny the first time I, Melanie is the is is our friend. Um, when we first met them, I had asked my wife. I said, "Well, you know, Schoenberg is a pretty unique name, and you should." Right you know, ask if, if, uh, if her father was Arnold Schoenberg. I mean, her grandfather was Arnold Schoenberg. And I can't remember whether she asked or I asked, but it turned out like, yes, that this was the case. And so the first time that I met Melanie, uh, you know, I was like, oh, you know, this is super interesting. Uh, I, you know, had a whole, you know, period of graduate school research on Schoenberg and 12 Tone Music, the whole thing. And she's yeah. like, oh my God, like, you know, like no one likes <laughs> grandmother's music no one likes right. 12 tone music right like it's such a such a niche thing which of course when yeah. i was doing research at the graduate level it just sort of seemed like of course everybody's interested in like you know 12 tone music and and schoenberg and right. you know, liberalism and all this kind of stuff um that's just like the narcissism of graduate students um but so her her brother randy who is the art lawyer you know they're they're big um, uh, uh, sort of uh, what's the conservators of their of their grandfather's legacy, and he was also an interesting artist. Like he was a, a painter and a water watercolorist because he'd been friends with Kandinsky. And you know, this was a moment when like these yeah. people all did this stuff. And he has this fantastic set of playing cards. Schoenberg made this like set of playing cards, drawings for playing cards. Yeah. And um, which Randy Schoenberg had made into actual sort of contemporary cards with this really nice kind of like, you know, Viennese secessionist design on the back. Oh, I like Arnold, that. Yeah. Arnold Schoenberg. And the cards themselves are really beautiful with these like great jokers and face cards and everything else. Yeah. And like it's one of my favorite things because these were these were drawings that he had made and a set of cards that he had actually made. Um, and they're really like, you know, like they've got this kind of like eeriness. There's like a, there's a quality to them that beyond whether you would know that they were the Schoenberg's work or not are, are super interesting. Um, and I still have them upstairs somewhere and we were trying to be super careful not to let the kids play with them because as soon as you let anybody under, you know, 15 handle playing cards, it's like you'll lose something or, or another of them. But uh, right. um, I've always, I wanted to like get them out into greater circulation because they're a great example and a great way of popularizing this person's work, which has been, super cool um and it makes that's it such a nerdy. niche phrase or sentence and, that and you it, just said popularizing popularizing <laughs> stuff yeah but they lived they lived here in brentwood right like schoenberg taught at ucla okay. they lived in brentwood yeah right that's funny okay i'd like to see those posts uh covid or you can text me images yeah. of them maybe because... what i'll do is i'll start like my instagram has fallen off because of what has turned into you know art world instagram has just become too sanctimonious yeah. for me but maybe what i'll start doing is just like maybe i'll just instagram the entire deck please do and don't what, give any context one a day and just like hashtag like ace of hearts whatever else and like people will just be like, what? And then get to the end of it and be like, this was, you know, Sherman, we're going to make a whole thing about yeah. it. Um, yeah, maybe. But did you I'm like just... listening to 12 Tone or did you find it interesting? Because I so, found it interesting 
but I some did not it. like listening to it. Some of it. There was some. There were some operas, Botzek, um, Alban Berg's uh, stuff. Uh, there, there were there was certain certain things. I mean, Schoenberg gets a lot of flack for it for inventing the system, but his stuff wasn't as atonal as some of yeah. the, some of the subsequent um devotees right like it's not like carl right. stockhausen and the rest of the folks in the 50s and the 60s who really is sort of like went went nuts with it um and in fact a lot of a lot of schoenberg's com- compositions even after the the 12-tone work which was sort of the high abstraction moment for for that music right. was a lot was a kind of return to classicism and and the and the and sort of regular chromatic work and so you know it, but it's not like it's not the first thing that I'm like, oh, awesome. Now I'm going to, you know, <laughs> relax, go, to go, go for a run and, you know, and stick on uh, and stick, stick Schoenberg on. My uh, favorite, my actual academic advisor in college, Dr. Clara Overly, amazing human. She triple majored at MIT and Wellesley, like just a nut, but like amazing human. Um, like cello and math and something else. But anyways, she, her parents were, she's German. Her parents were the heads of the Berlin opera and she loved 12 tone music, like truly loved it because she was a, she was on the same uh, emotional plane that my dad is (laughs) like a little, if a little nerdy. Yeah, but if you're someone and, who can, if you're someone who can listen to it and actually also has such good capacity to to yeah. to, re- to read and visualize, then yeah. I imagine a bunch of it is like kind of unpacking a puzzle as you're listening, right? It's like that's how she described it. Is she said it was like she because she can she's one of those people too who like when you see somebody like uh, some famous musician or composer what as you watch them write out. Right music she's like she's one of those people that can do that and just write it out and so for her she said she can see it as it's playing right and so for her it's like you have to pick where the next one needs to be in order for the you to hit all the all the notes right to get all the to get all the pieces and and then they and then they you know it's interesting It it was very similar to what was happening with with um uh, Saul Lewitt because it's like yeah. they, would, they would transpose it, you know, you like, you flip it on its head and then you mirror reverse it. And so this is the interesting, yeah. like, this was what was interesting for me about that moment because m- the musical notation and the graphic notation was being treated as a kind of graphic element and subject to these kinds of a, a mirror reversal a kind a kind of transformation and rotation across various different axes, which are the kinds of things that you would just do artistically and visually. Yeah. And so and so it had less to do with the relationship of the notes to one another and had everything to do with the relationship of the um, the notes as a graphic notation on a page. Right. Yeah. It's like I, it, it, within a system. And that's what made it kind of interesting. And that's what ends up like Stockhausen and the rest of these folks were inventing new notations. Like the whole, the, the moment that music becomes less about recording, you know, try, like, like, like translating sound into a graphic notation in order to be able to record it and then play it again to the point where the graphic notation becomes the text itself to be played with at the same moment where it's like in the late 19th century with symbolist poetry 
and uh, Mallarmé, right? Where it's like Uncouda Day is playing with graphic notations across the page and they're talking about the newspaper. Like a lot of it becomes about like the printed surface and the way this stuff looks. Right. And a lot of that is what Schoenberg's playing with. And that's, that's why I was kind of fascinated by it and thought it was interesting because it was more systematic than the kind of, there was something about that that was setting free than what happened afterwards, right? It's like you were less interested in the sound than you were right. interested in playing with the 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 notation, the, yeah, yeah, the the signifier of the sound, and then seeing kind of what came out of the back end, and that's that was sort of as far down, like that's why Schoenberg is less was sort of less interesting than 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 you know, even though Kanditsky was, was the person that he was most associated with the sort of the, the people that, that learned from that in visual art, it was Duchamp and John Cage, right? Like Cage, yeah. they were the ones who like understood that at the extreme Duchamp saying that if, if Kandinsky's, you know, talking about just, you know, the, the, the colors coming out of the, of the tubes on their own. And it's just about the selection of the color. And then he relates that back to Surratt and realizing that all art is just about this pictorial nominalism, right? This just like idea of selection. Right. Then, then the ready-made is just something that comes out of that. And John yeah. Cage is, you know, takes, takes the musical piece to the extreme where it's like, well, notation just ends up being anything graphically and, or then you don't need anything graphic at all. It's just whatever happens in the audience hall when, you know, someone decides to like make that, make that distinction. But it required someone to bring it down to that zero moment, right? Like, the yeah. writing degree zero that Roland Barthes talked about, you know, black on, you know, the, the Malevich's black square, Schoenberg's 12-tone row. And there, there is a reason yeah. that all this stuff happens within the same, you know, 10 years, right? Within right. the same decade. There's a reason why all this stuff is happening between like 1907 and 1917. So Schoenberg was the one in music who was doing that. So it sounds like you have a new Instagram project. Super nerdy. Yeah, I'll have to go find those playing cards. I hope they're still around. I think they're like upstairs okay. in like the, the, the protective case, but we'll have to make sure. Anyway. Yeah. That might have to be it. Like, Geeked out on yeah. Schoenberg. I know. <laughs> now I want the playing cards. If they have another, if they have another set, I'll buy them. They got, they got, they got already. I'll, I'll have to find out. I, I do, I do feel like there's a second life for these things. We have a little, little Instagram business on uh, Schoenberg's playing cards. Um, I'll have to send because I will send them to Dr. Clara Overly. And then, uh, and then the the last thing is, uh, well, we should, we should, we should finally, we should probably just like, we should end it here. And uh, say goodbye. <laughs> okay. <laughs> gotta, I'll see you on. We, uh, we, we got to end the podcast here. Yeah, see you on a run soon. All right. <laughs> okay. Bye. Bye. Bye.